Wine and Crime contains graphic and explicit content which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Lucy, what is our My mouth background? is all of a sudden dry, just out of jealousy. It should be. <laughs> Lucy, what is our background and maybe psych for boy band crimes? A boy band is a vocal group consisting of young male singers, usually in their teens or 20s at the time of formation. Conception. Conception. Singing love songs marketed towards young women. Yeah. Many boy bands dance as well, giving highly choreographed performances. These groups are often created by talent managers or record producers who hold auditions and just kind of slap groups together based on their talent. Mm -hmm. You're going to be the blonde one. You're going to be the bad boy. You're going to be the... We'll get to that. Ooh. Also, what was that show on MTV where they- Making the band. Yeah. Making the band. Is that where Angel, what's his name, came from? Ashley Angel. We will get to it. Ashley Angel. And also- really liked him. (laughs) I bought his CD. Mom really liked him because she (sighs) was just coming out of her hysterectomy and was recovering at home and was on a lot of pain medication. (laughs) Oh, she watched that whole series. And she was so loopy. My mom does not watch reality TV unless it's um, (laughs) Amazing Race. Mm. And oh, she was way into Amazing Race. She was. Still loved, this I remember. Loved Amazing Race and Loopy on pain meds loved making the band <laughs> and would like regularly cry on behalf of Ashley Angel because he was homesick. Oh. And she was so like, so <laughs> just empathetic. She was just. see his mom. Yeah. He's so sweet though. He was the tender hearted yeah. cherub yeah. of that. Yeah. Again, we'll get to it. Okay. Boy bands are carefully managed in terms of their attire, promotional materials, and music videos. Being trendy is a cornerstone of boy bands, so they are constantly having to update their looks and musical style. Mm. Each member of the group will generally have a persona, like the Mm -hmm. cherubic blonde one, Mm -hmm. uh, the sweet one, the bad boy, the aloof one with piercing eyes, Mm -hmm. and the one with... The great personality. Yeah. <laughs> My cousins. The Fatone. The hand. Oh, God. I liked him. He was my favorite. No, third favorite, but whatever. I always went for the blonde ones. Remember Howie? Yeah. I wasn't a Howie. No. 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 I liked AJ. Yeah. AJ was like the older brother one. Yeah. I AJ, feel like AJ was, like was the- just on Dancing with the Stars. Ugh. I need to know if this is true. (laughs) So this pigeonholing is a unique feature of boy bands and also girl groups and also just like society at large. But in terms of like boy bands as being set apart from other musical groups. Sure. There's Mm -hmm. like that persona feature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. rarely write their own music and in recent years have benefited from the technology of autotune. Oh, you don't say. (sighs) It isn't. You don't say. (laughs) I don't know. <laughs> Why are you naturally good at auto tune? <laughs> yeah. I just have that. I have the pipes, the fake okay. pipes. <laughs> no, that's weird. That's eerie. 
but I have to move on. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> no sake. Oh, got to get okay. my boat bones. Boat, boat, goat bones. Your goat, goat bones. bones. <laughs> the boat bones. The boat bones. Your, your boat bones. So K-pop is short for Korean popular music and is a genre of music originating in South Korea, not to be confused with North Korea. Very <laughs> to North, with North Korea, Korea. <laughs> has yet to, to hit the pop music scene, but they haven't embraced it could happen. Yet. They also yeah. are likely not listening to this podcast. No. No. No, but just to be, just to be clear, we're talking about Korea, but like, South Korea. North right. Korea. So this music has a million different influences from R&B, gospel, jazz, hip hop, Caribbean dance hall, wow. salsa, folk, country, electronic dance, and classical music in addition to traditional Korean music. So this genre, as far as like influences, is all over the fucking place. Mm-hmm. They're just like, whatever, we're going to take what works. We're going to try it. Try it all. Mm-hmm. You're going to take what Light works. Light it up like basically. dynamite. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, oh. It's smooth like butter. Mm-hmm. So this music is described as pop on crack, mm-hmm. or it's, it's very optimistic. It's fun. It's energetic. It's also really hard to describe if you've never heard it. So here is how NPR puts it. Amazing. Can't K-pop, wait for this. K-pop is, quote, a maximalist dreamland full of color, high concept performances and videos, a plethora of performers and unrivaled choreography. If top 10 in America wanted solo singer singers so soft every breath was caught on mic over a mid-tempo chorus, a la Billie Eilish, that was mm. my editorializing. Okay. K-pop appeared to offer a genreless alternative, constant stimulation, euphoria delivered in eight to ten melodies, and fantastical harmonies in a single track. Mm. So, like, basically, if, like, Backstreet Boys merged with, like, the board game Candyland. <laughs> Every genre yes. in existence. That is a wonderful... Thank you. <laughs> That's a wonderful Thank way you. to put it. Yeah, Totally. So while I was writing my notes, I was watching a Netflix uh, episode of the show Explained, if you've ever heard of it. It's like short little 20-minute episodes of just various topics explained by professionals and experts and blah, blah, blah. And it sounds amazing, and I'm going to start watching that. So like I said, very short episodes. There's like uh, billionaires and the hmm. female orgasm and uh, cryptocurrency. Well, and, I need that explained for sure. Right, and the one orgasm. of these ep- the one orgasm. of these <laughs> I know what you meant. I one get of these Bitcoin. episodes. I don't get my bits. <laughs> one of these episodes is on K-pop. So cool. A lot of my notes is fr- are from this episode. Um, like kind of like what Kenyon alluded to, there's quite a bit of overlap between how K-pop operates as a system and how boy bands in the U.S. evolved mm-hmm. and sort of therefore devolved. In the yeah, 90s. like boy band yeah. boot camp yeah. for K-pop is next level. Mm-hmm. Well, like the origin of boy bands, it all evolved around like the mid '90s, also, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just the like curated personas and yeah, image the matching outfits. Yeah. We'll get to. I'm all sure of we this. will. Yeah. 
Um, so if you're interested in this episode of Explained, it aired in season one. It's like the fifth or sixth episode. It's very cool. interesting. I'm totally going to check that out. Highly that recommend awesome. the whole series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just short little snippets. It's very consumable. Mm-hmm. Okay. So back in 1992, a new band called Sauteji and Boys performed on a nationally broadcast TV show in mm-hmm. South Korea. But the judges didn't think there was enough melody and gave them poor reviews, actually the lowest reviews of all of the people performing in that specific episode, because it was so drastically unfamiliar to the audience. Oh, it was like too new. Too poppy, not enough ballad. Well, and I think that the uh, ascension from what that culture was used to compared to what uh, Sao Teji brought was like, what the fuck? Well, I know I we mentioned this I can't even times. enjoy this. Like, it's, but it's so, a, yeah. It's like the psychology behind why people with anxiety rewatch the same shows, mm-hmm. like The Office, over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's like that predictability, and then people get really thrown off when something, like, totally new mm-hmm. comes in. I mean, I know that my anxiety disorder is why I resist, like, most new trends until it's already been around long enough to just seep into everything around me and then, and then I'm you're like, all about okay, it. I'll get on TikTok. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think <laughs> we that's all also just saw that one coming. Mm-hmm. That's also just human nature, you know? Mm-hmm. That's not just like people with anxiety or whatever. It's it's just human nature and when you mm-hmm. have a country like Korea, which is so entrenched in tradition mm-hmm. and like doing as your elders have done, it was just it was a, it was a lot. Mm-hmm. It was a big it was a big uh, left turn. Yeah, it was a, it was a leap. So hits hit songs before this performance were known as quote unquote healthy songs. Hmm. So these were songs and styles essentially imposed by the government. Ooh, okay. They, uh, yeah, that was it was heavily censored. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, not I would say not as censored as, for example, North Korea, obviously, or even right. China, but mm-hmm. uh, they were designated by the they were approved by the government on some level before they were put on like one of three sanctioned TV channels oh Mm -hmm. okay okay Okay. yeah um so these songs and styles like I said were imposed by the government there were a lot of musical variety shows on TV variety Mm -hmm. showing either patriotic music or what they called safe music so it was was extremely like G-rated. Got it. Okay. Like, like folk songs or like Yeah, like probably folk songs would be more like patriotic, but G like the safe music would be like, mm-hmm. oh, I love this girl, but I can't touch her. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Palatable, traditional, mm-hmm. very, very music. 1950s sock hop. Yeah. Very vibes. Conservative. Mm-hmm. Conservative. Yeah. That's a yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. So Sauteji signaled a massive change. They wore really odd Western style clothing. They had lots of synchronized energetic dancing. They were Love. dramatically different. Mm-hmm. And if you watch this performance of them on that particular show in 1992, two. Two, I guess. Can't wait. It was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was two. Then they performed. But, uh, it, it it's like you can see the shock on the judges' faces, and you can also <laughs> just like tell how fucking weird this whole thing was. Right. It's very bizarre. I love it. 
So Sauteji was described accurately, in my opinion, as the Korean new kids on the block. Okay. Mm -hmm. This group introduced American hip hop fashion to Korea. So such as baggy clothing, uh, skiing outfits and like (laughs) full ass winter mittens. Yeah, I love it. I love (laughs) it. So like um, they look like oven mitts. Like Seth Green can't hardly wait. Yeah. yeah, ensemble. Yeah, like 80s yeah. ski suits yeah, that became like, just leisure wear fashion. I love it. It was like That's barely amazing. leisure wear. Well, it was right. like very much sports wear. It was yeah, like I mean, it was like, barely leisure wear in the 80s either, but people fucking went for it. I gotta put, I I gotta put some pictures of the mittens on the drive because yes. they're like they're like oven mitts. Yeah. And they're yeah. just doing all their routines with these big ass like fucking mittens. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I love so it. Like any place, anytime is so fucking bizarre. And we yeah. look back it. on now and be like, oh. what the fuck were we thinking? We I went mean, back to middle parts. I'll take off my cat ears now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. I was trying it's, to differentiate, but you know what? It it's what it's. Okay, so their mittens. Also, their songs were made up of controversial lyrics, disrespecting older generations, which was not super common. So, like, lyrics, like, and I'm paraphrasing, but, like, our our parents made these cages and now we're living mm-hmm. in these cages. Like, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. Totally. Yeah. A little angsty. A little bit uh-huh. of angsty. A little angsty. A little edgy. Yeah. Okay. So these were perceived as going against traditional Korean customs. And as much as the adults didn't like it, the kids were like kind of into it. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly like the fashion and that shocking cultural element. They were like, oh, yeah. Teenagers going to teen. Yeah. Youth rebellion defies like all culture. Mm -hmm. It just always fucking happens. It is. It is a form of mm-hmm. development mm-hmm. it's it's culture is mm-hmm. what it is mm-hmm. so uh, a record executive and producer at the time uh lee suman nailed it saw this new k-pop style as the next big export or as he called it a cultural commodity mm. so he was like very much ahead of his time this is in the yeah. mid 90s wow his entertainment company called SM Entertainment created the boy band HOT or Hot. And this was modeled after Sauteji. Ta- Sao Ta- oh God, I can never remember how to pronounce this. Sauteji. Hmm. Sauteji. There are lots of similarities between these groups, including their unique style choices like the fucking mittens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cute. Choreography was also a really big thing. So basically, Soman created a, he produced a formula for what was to be the future of K-pop groups. He like, Mm -hmm. there's a specific formula and he was at the Mm -hmm. advent of said formula. He was the blimp master. Right. He was the blimp master. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in the mid-1990s. Backstreet blimps. blimps. All right. (laughs) All right. In the mid-90s, Asia experienced a big economic drop, and South Korea decided that Lee, Lee Soman was right. They could use their music and arts culture as a global commodity. Mm-hmm. So the literal gover- the Korean government, which had formerly essentially censored modern pulp pop music, was now investing a full 1% of their national budget to promoting 
I love it. They're music. Whoa. They're pop music. Wild. I mean, the French government promotes French pop music and has like all kinds of rules for like how many, uh, what percentage of songs played on the radio in France have to be like actually from France, f- from France and oh, in yeah. French. Yeah. Uh, so like a lot of Canadian songs like slip in, but like as long as they're like in the French language because they didn't want everything to be taken over by like English right. pop music. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I th- that was I super like smart. And I feel like in the in the mid 90s, especially, this was very like progressive thinking. Mm-hmm. And also from a traditional Korean standpoint, where just a few years earlier, they were actively censoring Right. Yeah, this kind of music and now yeah. they're just like oh fuck yeah we got to make some money this could yeah, work it's a leap forward well <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. money money moves the world well comparison to the leap forward might not be totally yeah. appropriate but... fuck it look at abba <laughs> yeah was basically what they were saying exactly oh we'll get to abba actually is abba yeah. the original k-pop band we'll get to it honey <laughs> it's way pop <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Okay, so the Korean government is investing one percent of their national budget to promoting their this K-pop music. One of the people in charge of one of the firms responsible for this was a former member of Sautaji and and Boys, and Mm. they created much of the withstanding elements of today's K-pop music. Nice. So I guess. At this time, like mid-late 90s, we weren't using the term K-pop. We're kind of just using like various terms of music originating in Korea. But it right. wasn't its own genre yet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was they started it. There was yeah. a clear there's beginning. It's a, mm-hmm. a growth period. Let's start cool. at the very beginning. So that ended up being like a five billion global industry. Billion Dang. dollar global industry. And yeah. actually probably more now because that number yeah. was from the uh, explained episode, which was released in uh, 2018. So yeah. I'm sure it's oh, yeah. That. Way more. Now it's probably that much per year. Oh, yeah. Oh, I think that I think it was annual. But yeah. Within Korea, K-pop groups are called idol groups. I-D-O-L. Not like idol. Yeah. An entertainment company scouts for individuals with singing and dancing talents and basically throws them together to form an extremely polished performance troupe. So what was that show on MTV that your mom liked? Making the band. Making the the band. band. When my mom had her hysterectomy and was looped on pain meds following her it, surgery. She loved she, making she the band. Loved I love that. Making the band and literally was brought to actual tears, like sobbing, was so upset because <laughs> Ashley Angel was homesick for Hawaii. And she was like, he just wants his mom. I oh, loved Ashley Angel. God. I bought his CD. Yeah, his solo, tr- his solo and I album. Just, I remember. I think I was in like eighth grade, and I just was like, "Wow, I don't what know what is happening. I don't know what my mom is going through, but I'm gonna go into it's my room. It's a lot. It's something. <laughs> it's yeah. something. It's something else. <laughs> Amazing. And then she like, you know, healed and went off the pain meds and like, you know, didn't, didn't care about fucking. Uh, what was that? The Ashley O-town Angel. O Town. O Town. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I know. So, this is basically an off camera. 
Making the band. <laughs> Making yeah. the band, yeah. I love it. So this process can take years, and we've mm-hmm. also discussed this process in our Motown Murders episode. Mm, so it's yep. like that that factory system yeah. of scouting people with talent, various talents. Who also fit, are really attractive. Yep. Who also are attractive, fitting them together in a way that makes sense so that their chemistry vibes, and then like, pff, here's a band. There you go. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. sometimes that chemistry is short-lived, and we mm. will get to it. Uh-oh. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Oh, dear. So in terms of, like, how these bands are made up, uh, there are typically at least five members, and they're, they each play a specific role. Mm-hmm. So we have the leader, the singer, basically the only one who can, like, sing really well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The dance. Uh, oh, also the singer will come with like a like a like a sub singer, like the the one who can sing the second best. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then we have the dancer. Also comes with the one who can like dance the second best. Mm-hmm. The rapper, the youngest one, which in Korea is called the makne, and the oldest one, which is called the matne. Mm-hmm. The center, which is always the one in the middle, okay, mm-hmm. which is basically the Amanda, the one with the weird okay. hair. Yeah. <laughs> the visual, so like the most attractive one, mm-hmm. the Kenyan, mm-hmm. and the and the all rounders, mm-hmm. plural, maybe the ones who can like kind of do it all. Huh. Mm-hmm. So okay. it's just very bizarre. Just like you, so, there's some overlap. You, you fill in the a role. role oh, there's it's totally oh, yeah. overlap. Yeah, there's totally overlap. But like in general, there has to be at least one to fulfill each or right. most of these roles. You know, whereas right. like for boy bands, the roles are a little bit different. There's like the smoke show. Yeah, yeah. like the jock, the, the, the goofy throb, one. The go- yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The boy next door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same thing, except like these are kind of, these are a little bit more specific. Mm-hmm. And I also don't think that there's much of an illusion between like K-pop fans and who these K-pop stars sort of like represent. Like I think they they understand that these guys or girls are fulfilling specific roles Mm-hmm. That doesn't really diminish the the magic. Well, you know usually I mean? fans are way more like with it than the industry will give them credit for. You I know? think so. Yeah. Like they know what they're consuming. Yeah. Also, these members have to be very clean, meaning they 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 shouldn't have any scandals in yeah, their past. We'll, we'll get to that. There's no like trashing hotel rooms. No. And also in terms of their music, like lyrics and stuff, love is the biggest topic. So they are never or should be never allowed, you know, actually allowed to disclose a romantic relationship publicly mm. because there's especially with the with the boy with the boys, the boy bands, mm-hmm. they have to be publicly available to any of their fans. Like right. they, they have a yeah. chance with them. Uh-huh. Right. Which mm-hmm. totally worked for sixth grade me and yep. Nick Carter. Thousand percent. Yeah. And Otow. <laughs> was that Nick was Carter the get? Was his? That was he's the Justin boys. Timberlake of the Backstreet Boys. Right. right. Or so the they one? thought. No, no. That's Lance no. Bass. 
He was the blonde oh, lead Lance one. Bass. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Also, yeah. congratulations yeah. to Lance Bass and his partner. They yes. just welcomed their first baby. They had twins. I think <gasps> twins. Babies. Yeah, you're right. Twins. Mm-hmm. Uh, fraternal boy girl twins. Thank you, TikTok. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason I know that. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good job. Good for you, Lance. We did it. We did it. We welcome Lance. (laughs) My dreams are crushed, but congrats or whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay. So most K-pop bands nowadays are acronyms, so they don't need to be translated between different languages, which is another component of their globalization strategy. Oh. Oh. So if you if you notice, so we started with I have to scroll back up to my how to pronounce this because I'm a horrible person. Scroll back up to the Sao Teji group, which mm-hmm. is spelled S-E-O-T-A-I-J-I, which is the full name of one of their members. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Sao Teji, it 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 it's it's not it's it doesn't roll, it doesn't roll off the tongue for a lot of people who weren't who aren't familiar with Korean names. Uh-huh. Um so now you have bands like BTS mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that really does torture sing. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what my boyfriend Brit Britannica has to say. Punk, also called punk rock, is an aggressive form of rock music that coalesced into an international, though predominantly Anglo-American, movement between 1975 and 1980, roughly. Often politicized and full of vital energy beneath a sarcastic, hostile facade, punk spread as an ideology and and as an aesthetic approach, becoming an archetype of teen rebellion and alienation. We're, We're... The movement is just five years? Yeah, punk is dead, didn't you hear? Well, I know, but that just seems so short, don't you think? That surprises me. It was a bright star that burnt out kind of quickly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, you know, I love etymology and entomology. Mm -hmm. Okay. But here's some etymology. The word punk was first used around 1575. But at the what? time, its meaning uh, what was kind of defined as a pro- quote-unquote prostitute. Sex worker. Got Sex it. Sex worker. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Other definitions over time have included a young, a young, inexperienced person, usually a man, usually a blonde man. <laughs> Don't trust him. <laughs> uh, nonsense or foolishness. A preparation as of a stick of coated wood that burns slowly and is used to ignite fuses, especially of fireworks. Weird. Never heard of that. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, could be used to just say that something's inferior, um, something is of poor health. And, of course, punk rock, a punk rock musician or someone who affects punk style. Mm. Hmm. My great-grandma, her, like, family nickname instead of grandma or whatever, was punka. Aww. Don't know where it came from or That's why. Cute. Sounds Norwegian. Mm-hmm. It does. So the leap from, oh, I don't know, a sex worker to into like a music term happened around 1970 and probably stemmed from the slang definition of punk as a young man used as a sexual partner by another man in a prison. Mm. Okay. Didn't know that either. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting etymology. That is interesting. Yeah. 
So in the mid-1960s, there were some like garage rock bands, like the one that I recognized was Question Mark and the Mysterians. Oh, I did not recognize Tears. that. 96 Tears. You've heard oh. that song. Oh. Okay. That's I just Question never Mark remember the, the name of anyone or anything. Yeah. That's yeah, okay. Um, so, the, so these garage rock bands kind of blended with more hard rock, angsty sounds like those of the New York Dolls. Mm-hmm. By 1975, punk described the simple literary music scene around clubs like CBGB in New York City. Mm-hmm. In 1976, the Ramones released their first album, which, uh, quote, became the blueprint for punk, guitar as white noise, drums as texture, and vocals as hostile slogans. And mm. just a lot of people who literally did not know how to play their instruments. Yeah. A few that did. Well, the Many white noise. Many that did not. The yeah. white noise thing. You really, that's not like. It wasn't the melodic. primary focus. It yeah. wasn't mm-hmm. polished. Yeah. Uh, punk was a response to the pastoral hippie culture of the 1960s, concerned more with like dirty urban anger. Mm-hmm. The term leapt over the pond to the UK where the sex pistols emerged. Mm-hmm. And here's a fun fact that I believe we will be touching on in Kenyon's case. Uh, that band was assembled by a guy who owned a fetishist store in London that was just called Sex. Love. We will be getting to it. Mm-hmm. That story alone is really bizarre and cool. So here's a little background of British punk, once again, from my lover, ironically, Brit, Britannica, British Mm. punk. Announced by their manifesto, the single Anarchy in the UK, the Sex Pistols established punk as a national style that combined confrontational fashions with sped up hard rock and elusive, socially aware lyrics that addressed the reduced expectations of 1970s teens. Mm. Armed with a critique of the music industry and consumerism, early British punk spawned a resurgence of interest in rock, mirroring social upheaval with a series of visionary songs couched in black humor. Groups such as the Buzzcocks, The Clash, and Susie and the Banshees scored hits in like 1977, 1978. Mm-hmm. Anarchist, decentralizing, and libertarian, UK punk was drawn into the polarized politics of British society and by 1979 had self-destructed as a pop style. Mm. Yeah. Very, so like very said, quick. Burned bright. Right. But an enduring legacy. I mean, I still listen to some of these bands. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Mainly legacy. just the clash, if I'm being really honest. The legacy Because they're more is... melodic than the others. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of legacy, though. Yeah. Post-punk groups such as Public Image Limited and Joy Division replaced punk's worldliness with inner concerns matching rock with the technological rhythms of disco. Mm. A little bit more catchy. Mm-hmm. Dare Palatable. I say. Palatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Harmonious. Drink. Not migraine-inducing. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Nevertheless, punk's influence could be seen throughout British society, notably in mass media shock tactics, the confrontational strategies of environmentalists, and the proliferation of independent record labels. And collage art. Collage Uh, art. Absolutely. Spiked belts. We'll get to all of this. (laughs) Fashion. In the U.S., the punk scene was big in Seattle, San Francisco, where the Dead Kennedys were from, and Los Angeles, where Black Flag was from. Mm. In the late 70s, though, disco was really taking over, and it kind of drove 
the punk scene underground, resulting in hardcore punk, which is what you guys are referring to, the super fast-paced, frenetic, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. That's hardcore punk. That's not like the original punk. Okay. Sure. Hardcore punk flourished in the early to mid-80s. Nirvana showed up in 1991, bringing in the grunge scene, which was effectively Gen X's punk. Mm-hmm. Right. It's punk music, but like more flannel and less leather. Mm-hmm. More like mellow kind yeah. of. Very Gen X. Very Gen X. Super Gen X. Mm-hmm. Punk also heavily influenced 80s new wave and even synth pop. So like, mm-hmm. honestly, the when, when I said punk was really just from like, 75, 1975 to 1980. That's like that was like classic. The pure, right. pure punk. Pure, yeah. The pure, cure, classic <laughs> punk. <laughs> that was an accident, but it worked. According to How Stuff Works, quote, Sid Vicious's death in 1979 is still often considered the day that punk died. And we've covered mm-hmm. Sid Vicious. We covered him recently. What was yeah, that Yeah, we topic? did. It was the like celebrity whatever crimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, groupie crimes. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, for some, Green Day's ascension to the top of the pop charts with Dookie 15 years later was like the music industry kicking a dead dog. Although, okay, harsh. That album is Green amazing. Day. Yeah. <laughs> love Green Day. Did you, Have you guys, like yesterday, I saw a meme of somebody with a giant tattoo on their forearm, like their entire forearm, and it's just... Their ticket master uh, concert <laughs> ticket to a Green Day concert in like 2009. Oh, honey, no. I've got questionable tattoos. 2009? I don't know. It's a little late. I don't know. I mean, they're still Early touring. 2000s. Yeah. I've seen the Broadway show American Idiot. Okay. Oh, nice. I, wow. actually I think quite I own good. all of Green Day's albums. Mm-hmm. I'm. Their whole discography. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Amanda and I went to Green Day with Blink-182 in concert at the Target Center. That was a fucking fantastic show. Mm -hmm. Nice. And you got your tattoo covered up or? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, oh, I did not understand the joke. I was like, what tattoo? Didn't my dad come with us? Didn't he uh, fully attend the concert with I us? I don't think so. I think he dropped us off and picked us up, but I don't think he was there unless I really blocked that out. <laughs> well, he he would have faded into the he background. Would have been quiet. That was Operation Tiddlywinks. Yep. Mm-hmm. We made shirts and everything. Go mm-hmm. fucking figure. Yeah, that sounds like us. So punk, of course, is more than just music. When we think about punk as an aesthetic, we think of mohawks and studded leather jackets, chains, and eyeliner. Mm-hmm. Other fashion choices include Doc Martens boots, mm-hmm. like combat boots, I have like those. military kind of boots also. Deliberately offensive t-shirts. Yeah, check. Mm-hmm. Brightly colored hair, tattoos, probably done by your friend's friend at a party. Yeah, Stick like unprofesh tattoos. Stick and yeah. pokes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I Gotta want I still need to get one that just says tattoos. I want to get one that just says "fuck you" under my right tit as a stick and poke. <laughs> so Is it poke and stick? Stick and poke. So you can just lift up the tit. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Tell you all you need to know. I found a mosquito bite mysteriously under my small boob this morning. Oof, that's rough. <laughs> How'd it get in there? I do not know. <laughs> I don't want to think about it. 
Um, uh, and also like body modification. Mm-hmm. Lots of piercings. Mm-hmm. Clothing was also not as engendered and binary. So like dudes wore tight jeans, fishnets, skirts, and eyeliner. And then the gals maybe shaved their heads and wore men's shirts, jackets, and combat boots, for mm-hmm. example. This specific genre of music and like culture was actually quite feminist. There, there were a lot of female punk musicians and people generally respected the women in the scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was it was progressive. Punk subculture is largely characterized by anti-establishment views, the promotion of individual freedom, and DIY ethics. The punk ethos is primarily made up of beliefs such as nonconformity, anti-authoritarianism, anti-corporatism, anti-consumerist, anti-corporate greed. Uh, direct action and not quote unquote selling out. Mm-hmm. There are lots of zines. There's lots mm-hmm. of satire. Philosophically speaking, music journalist John Savage describes the subculture as a quote bricolage, so like a like a Bricola. collage kind of mm-hmm. of almost every. <laughs> That's all I could hear. Bricolage. <laughs> Of almost every previous youth culture in the Western world since World War II, quote, stuck together with safety pins. Lots Mm -hmm. of safety pins. Mm -hmm. I loved that description. Mm -hmm. Um, Quote, the music and culture was generated by people on the margins and being a punk became a badge of honor, says Mark Anderson, punk historian and author of We Are the Clash, Reagan, Thatcher, and the Last Stand of a Band That Mattered. Mm -hmm. It's a lot packed into that title. Lots of anti, well, yeah, it makes sense that they were so, like, political and disillusioned because they were, like, Reagan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, living, living through this <laughs> long and overwhelming wave of, like, new conservatism that was basically just, like, fuck poor people. Mm-hmm. It was a response, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, quote, it had some specific musical or fashion or hairstyle signifiers, but I think what is underneath all of that and what really is and what is really the substance is a challenging and creative spirit. Joey Ramone said in a 1976 Rolling Stone interview that his band formed around a mutual feeling of exile. I hate this part, especially in their romantic pursuit of women. Quote, They always wanted to go with the guys who had Corvettes, so we had nothing to do but climb on rooftops and sniff glue. Okay. I never thought about punk music even being even remotely romantic or romantic-related. It felt like a genre of music that, like, doesn't talk about romance that much. I mean... This is just one quote from right. one musician, but I don't like this incel version of the birth of punk. But yeah, to quote from Joey Ramone, it's got a little bit of weight. But yeah, maybe yeah. maybe they just meant like, you know, well, we they felt they were, like outsiders. We weren't the popular kids. That's ex- yeah, that's exactly what he said. But I think right. the way he said it was like, oh, can't get the hot girls going to go sniff glue and start a band. It's like, yeah. oh, okay. which is also probably true, but less appealing. Yeah. So speaking of, it should be clarified that punk does not inherently endorse or support fascism or neo-Nazis. There's a lot of like fashion overlap, but I'll kind of get to it. That's so odd. Oh, it's that they, yeah, the line is. It's like the shaved heads, the combat boots, 
basically oh, like the SLC punk thing where like some of the shaved yeah. head people were like and neo-Nazis. We kind of get it, get into it in my case, a li- like touch on it a little bit, but not a ton. But like Lucy mentioned a little bit earlier, a lot of like intentionally um, shocking or um, what did you say? Offensive mm-hmm. T-shirts like swastikas were super prevalent in the punk scene even though a lot of them considered themselves like anti-fascist it was just for shock value initially but i think that opened the door for a lot of neo-nazis into the scene Mm -hmm. Mm. anyway just i'll just read this next part so this is from a 2018 gq article Every hardcore band you loved in the 80s and beyond, from Black Flag to Minutemen to Fugazi, had one an unfortunate thing in common. Nazi skinheads occasionally stormed their concerts, stomped their fans, and gave Hitler salutes in lieu of applauding, and generally turned a communal experience into one full of hatred and conflict. Mm. God. Yeah. That's scary. And then they have, like, mosh pits, too, and you're like... Oh, we'll get to shit that went down in mosh pits. Okay. Or pogoing is how it started. It started just like kind of throwing people sort of back and forth in like kind of a fun way. And then like Mm -hmm. punching came in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like a a safe mosh pit, a gentle mosh. (laughs) I don't know. A mosh and nosh. (laughs) (laughs) I've been in a gentle mosh pit. It was really fun. But like a serious one, no thanks. Uh, I saw our our friend who was in like a hardcore screamo band when we were in college. And I went to one of his shows and I was being supportive and I was right up by the stage and I got punched in the back and went home. Yeah. (laughs) I was at like a ska concert with a friend and we were in a mosh pit and it was really fun. That's, (laughs) that is a gentle mosh. (laughs) Yeah. And I was also like 16. No mosh. The last time she (laughs) moved. 15 maybe. (laughs) So back to kind of what Kenyon was saying, I think because Elvis was never taught formally and he also couldn't read music, he just Mm -hmm. memorized stuff really quickly. Right. Um, Plus because of racist reasons, like his music was really heavily influenced by like black gospel music Mm -hmm. and like jazz, R&B, that traditionally black sounds. Well, Mm -hmm. he was like the bridge who, he was like the white guy that, that took black, music and cultural influences into the white mainstream. Correct. Also, given the neighborhoods that he lived in were predominantly black, um, I think that on the surface, people looked down on him. They're just like, oh, it's just taking all this this black culture. Like, where is this going to go? He was frequently told that he sucked. Mm -hmm. And the apparent motivations behind the labels that were interested in him were pretty gross. Mm -hmm. According to the Sun receptionist, the one that wrote the note, She says, over and over, I remember Sam saying, if I could find a white man, this is a quote, remember, Mm -hmm. if I could find a white man who had the Negro sound and the Negro feel, I could make a billion dollars. Yep. I mean, well, he's not wrong. Yeah, we can't, like, sit here and deny that Elvis's career was, like, a form of cultural appropriation and a white, accessible, like, Mm -hmm. version of, you know, the black sound. That's 100% what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So in the end, like not alone first, but of many Mm -hmm. of many, I think first ish and also just by far the most famous first Mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. 
Um, in the end, Elvis's sound, style, whiteness, and also the emotion that he could tap into in his music, which I, which I'm certain drew from that choir gospel, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very Operating emotional influence. music. Mm-hmm. All of this shaped up to commercial success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In 1956, RCA released Elvis's self-titled debut album. And it pretty much went down in history as defining the evolving sound of rock and roll. Mm -hmm. Three of the songs were covers of black artists, uh, Little Richard, Ray Charles, and The Drifters. Ever heard of them. Ever (laughs) heard of them. A quote from critic Robert Hilburn says, "These, These three songs were the most revealing of all. Unlike many white artists who watered down the gritty edges of original R&B versions of songs in the 50s, Presley reshaped them. He not only injected the tunes with his own vocal character, but also made guitar, not piano, the lead instrument in all three cases. Mm. So this really was like a sound that had not been heard before. So Mm. he took R&B and instead of watering it down and making it like white folk music... He like ramped it up and made it like, like rock and roll, white yeah. rock and roll music instead of what had been commonly accepted as like adapted for the white palette, meaning mm-hmm. watered down, just more accessible, something that like the parents would be okay with. Right. He took it the other way, jazzed it up. He jazzed it up, jizzed so it up, if you he will. Jizz, he it was everywhere. It went all over the place. <laughs> he cracked a blanket in half. <laughs> Don't bring a black light around this album. Do Mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. The album was the first rock and roll album to top the Billboard charts. Or chart. I guess there was only one chart at the time. Clearly, the world was not ready for Elvis, Aaron, Presley. Later in 1956. (laughs) The white world certainly wasn't. Right. He he began a two-week Vegas residency that was quite poorly received by the middle-aged conservative hotel guests. Mm -hmm. According to one critic, it was, quote, like a jug of corn liquor at a champagne party. (laughs) (laughs) I want that written on my tombstone. It's your epitaph. You are the jug of corn liquor. That's me. I'm a jug of corn liquor at a champagne party. (laughs) (laughs) You, yeah. You have a gutter palate. Yep. Yeah. At this time, he decided that he also wanted to become an actor. So he, being a fucking moron, signed a seven-year contract with Paramount Pictures. Oh, jeez. Who is your lawyer? Julian, get in touch with Elvis. (laughs) God. If only he had Julian at the time. After Vegas, Elvis toured the Midwest like a fucking grueling tour, like one show every day for like over two weeks, which we know. We would disintegrate into actual dust and fly away into the air. We barely, very nearly did last summer. Yep. Um, So during this time, he decided that he really liked to close his shows with a cover of Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog. Yep. Yeah. So that song is also a cover. Oh, most of his songs were like cover. Like he didn't write his own song. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, After a show in La Crosse, Wisconsin, this is so great. An urgent message on the letterhead of the local Catholic diocese newspaper (laughs) was sent to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, yes. (laughs) Did you get any more pearl clutching? (laughs) Oh, listen. In that sentence. Listen. It warned that, quote, Presley is a definite danger to the security of the United States. (laughs) His actions and motions were such 
to as to rouse the sexual passions of teenaged youth. After the show, more than a thousand teenagers tried to gang into Presley's room at the auditorium. Indications of har- of the harm Presley did just in lacrosse <laughs> were the two high school girls whose abdomen and thigh had Presley's <laughs> autograph. Oh my god. I mean, god. we signed tits and ass on our tour and we're yeah. signed ass for a sure. Lot of butts. Also, you could suck it, Catholic diocese. You were mm-hmm. like definitely diddling little boys at this point oh, anyway, yeah. so how yeah. dare you? Their main yeah. objection was how old the girls were. Exactly. <laughs> that they were girls. <laughs> oh. Sorry, that was horrible. That was okay. a horrible joke, and I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> this is from Wikipedia. <laughs> The famous Milton Berle show appearance came on June 5th at NBC's Hollywood studio amid another hectic tour. Berle persuaded Presley to leave his guitar backstage, advising, let him see you, son. Mm. Let him see that sock shoved down your pants, son. We'll get to it. During the performance, Presley abruptly halted an up-tempo rendition of Hound Dog with a wave of his arm and launched into a slow grinding version accentuated with energetic, exaggerated body movements. Yes. Kind of turned on by Lucy's academic description of Elvis's dancing. Mm -hmm. This is, again, lifted from Wikipedia. This was a crowdsourced description. Well, I'm into it. Presley's gyrations (laughs) created a storm of controversy. Television critics were outraged. Jack Gould of the New York Times wrote, quote, Mr. Presley has no discernible singing ability. His phrasing, if it can be called that, consists of the stereotyped variations that go with a beginner's aria in a bathtub. (laughs) His one specialty is an accented movement of the body, primarily identified with the repertoire of the blonde bombshells of the burlesque runway. Yeah. Is not wrong. Everybody loves some gyrating hips. Yeah. Yep. Or anything in between. Mm-hmm. What's your point, Mr. Gould? Yeah. Yeah. We get it. We like it. We love it. Yeah. Ben, <laughs> ben Gross of the New York Daily News opined that popular music, quote, has reached its lowest depths in the grunt and groin antics of one Elvis Presley. Oh, just wait, New York Daily News. I feel like this is the decades before us version of, who is it, Ben Shapiro, like criticizing the wet-ass P-word song. Oh, my God. The the WAP or WAP, whatever. The WAP backlash. Let's go with WAP. The WAP lash. So yeah, stupid. the WAP lash is WAP fucking lash. hysterical, <laughs> and I love it, and I'm so here for it. Yep. It's the, like these people have never heard songs before. before. Well, not music. certainly not songs sung by like powerful women of color taking yeah. control of their bodily autonomy. That's right. for goddamn sure. But like, oh, <laughs> yeah, did you not listen? Still to not the first time that's happened either. It's like too where close have you by been? Next? is literally a 90s R&B song about a yeah. guy getting a boner in a club and like poking his dance Step partner with back, it. Get dancing kind of close. close. That is played on the radio on my shower radio as I got ready for like ninth yeah. grade every morning and I sang it in the shower with no oh. idea what I was oh. talking about. I had no idea what any of it was. Yep. Like peaches and cream. Oh. Gonna oh. take Fantasy. it to the candy shop. Fantasy. <laughs> 
God. You couldn't sit in the back row of the school bus if you didn't know every single syllable and mm-hmm. grunt in fantasy. Mm-hmm. Oh, I could have sat in the back. Oh, yeah. You were like quizzed. <laughs> I, quiz- I quizzed people mm. before I let them sit in. <laughs> there it is. You're the fantasy gatekeeper dictator. of the school bus. <laughs> a little bit. Kenyon Lang. Next. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. What? Elvis, who rotates his pelvis, gave an exhibition that was suggestive and vulgar, tinged with the kind of animalism that should be confined to dives and bordellos. Mm-hmm. Ed Sullivan, whose own variety show was the nation's most popular, declared him, quote, unfit for family viewing. Ish. Spoke too soon, mm-hmm. Mr. Sullivan. Yup. To Presley's displeasure, he soon found himself being referred to as Elvis the Pelvis, yes. which he called, quote, one of the most childish expressions I ever heard coming from an adult. So he probably wouldn't yeah. like that I named my Elvis bust Pelvis Mesley. Pelvis Mesley. <laughs> <laughs> because it's like disfigured and melting. And yes, I will include <laughs> pictures for the blog. He's like- I have Velvis and Pelvis. <laughs> He also, I mean, yeah, he's a man, a white man who's being, uh, you know, sexually objectified, and it probably doesn't feel great. Mm-hmm. It was great to me. All right. Ed Sullivan clearly went back on his word and decided he wanted some of this action. So he booked Elvis mm-hmm. on his mm-hmm. own show as well. But according to legend, the broadcast was only shot from the waist up. Watching clips <laughs> Watching clips of previous broadcasts with his producer, like before Elvis's date to be on his show, Sullivan had opined that Presley, quote, got some kind of device hanging down below the crotch of his pants. So when he moves, yeah, so when he moves back, oh, sorry, so when he moves his legs back and forth, you can see the outline of his cock. I think it's a Coke bottle. We just can't have this on a Sunday night. This is a family show. <laughs> Maybe it's just his big cock. It, it might just be his dick. It really might just be his There's dick. There's no way to know. Sullivan publicly told TV Guide, quote, as for his gyrations, the whole thing can be controlled with camera shots. So, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, Presley was shown head to toe in the first and second show. There were two shows. Though the camera work was relatively discreet during his debut with leg-concealing close-ups when he danced, the studio audience reacted in customary style, screaming. So yeah, most of losing, it, like fainting and losing, losing their shit. So as soon as he started the gyrating, that's yeah, that's when they would we zoom, zoom in. in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's when the screaming started. Uh, Presley's <laughs> performance of his forthcoming single, the ballad "Love Me Tender." Love me chicken tenders. Yum. Mm-hmm. Yum. I had chicken tenders for dinner last night. Prompted a record-shattering million advance orders. More than any other single event, it was this first appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show that made Presley a national celebrity of barely precedented proportions. Wow. Damn. So that backfired Ed Sullivan. Yeah, suck mm-hmm. it, Sullivan. <laughs> Let's take a moment to check in with ourselves. How would you rate your relationship with yourself lately? How's your self-intimacy? Whether you're feeling confident and want to explore your innermost desires further, or could use a little boost in self-love, Dipsy's sexy audio stories are here to help. They sure are. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories 
designed by women for everyone. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. I love an immersive soundscape. Mm-hmm. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. Literally whatever you're into. Mm. Radically inclusive, Dipsy has stories for straight and queer listeners, and 56% of stories are voice acted by people of color. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again and again and again, you can always find something brand new and exciting to explore. They also have soothing sleep stories. Love those. Like lullabies for adults. Mm-hmm. Wellness sessions. And also sexy stories you can read if you prefer yep. to keep the voice in your head. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I do. I love a voice in my head. Mm-hmm. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time, explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or heat things up with a partner. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash gals that's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsy d-i-p-s-e-a stories.com slash gals one more time dipsy stories.com slash gals and treat your intimacy how much money do you think you're paying per month on subscriptions i can tell you that what i thought it was for me was maybe a third of what I was actually paying. <laughs> Triple it. It can be scary to find out, but once you do, that's when you're free to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Most people think they're paying about 80 bucks a month, but they're actually paying closer to 200. Yeah, this is this is accurate. And also, you might be like me, I recently found out that I'm paying for the same thing under two different email accounts. No. The same thing. Oh, no, I felt so dumb. Oh, honey. But you know what? Knowledge is power, and I canceled one of them, and Mm -hmm. that is all thanks to Rocket Money. God bless Rocket Money. Seriously, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. With Rocket Money, you can easily cancel the ones you don't want or the ones that you're accidentally buying twice. (laughs) I feel so seen. So seen. (laughs) With just the press of a button. No more long hold times or annoying emails with customer service. We're millennials. We all have phone anxiety. Mm -hmm. None of us want this. Rocket Money does all the work for you. Rocket Money can even negotiate to lower your bills for you up to 20%. They're like a friend. It's amazing. They're like a friend that's actually helpful. Mm -hmm. Like a lot. We're friends, but we are not this helpful. I'm sorry. We're just I'm not going into the, 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 the fine print for you. I'm not making a single call for you. It's not happening. <laughs> but with Rocket Money, all you have to do is take a picture of your existing bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money also lets you monitor all of your expenses in one place, recommends custom budgets based on your past spending, and they'll even send you notifications when you've reached your spending limits. And with over 5 million users and counting, Rocket Money has helped save its customers an average of $720 a year and $1 billion in total savings so far. That is 
Alar- alarming and amazing. Mm-hmm. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash gals. That's rocketmoney.com slash G-A-L-S. Rocketmoney.com slash gals. And treat your budget. Treat it. I've got the fan picker case. Um, So... Here we go. It's definitely oh, names gosh. that you have okay. heard of. Unless you were born under a rock. Okay. <laughs> Lou Perlman was born and raised in Flushing, Queens. Ugh. He the was nanny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was the only child of a middle-class Jewish couple, High and Rini Perlman. High ran Aww. a dry cleaning business, and Rini worked in a school lunchroom. I love it. So just like a pretty normal childhood. Uh-huh. Normcore. Normcore. Except Lou's first cousin, who was 13 years older than him, was Art Garfunkel. Okay. <laughs> the bad one. The, apparently <laughs> the dickhead of Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but Lou was inspired by this example of his rich and famous cousin, um, which I cannot say for my cousins they definitely are not inspired by me but um <laughs> are we rich and or famous no no then that's why i'm saying we, we would need to inspire in order for them to be inspired i know that just always makes fun of me because i try so hard to be liked by my little cousins and they're just Follow like your dreams. not interested <laughs> um <laughs> incredible stop trying to be a role model yeah seriously stop. Anyway, young Lou dreamed of entering the music business and making a name for himself. But there was one snag. He didn't actually have any musical talent. So oh, that's a hurdle. <laughs> instead, he decided managing bands would be his best bet. Smart. While still in high school, Lou began managing a local band, but when he realized how difficult the job was and how nearly impossible it was to make a band famous from scratch... He decided just to watch making the band, right, which, which, as we know, he would later create. Um, <laughs> all right, <laughs> all right. Uh, basically, he just was like, "This isn't working," so he decided to go in an entirely different direction. Put the band managing dreams on hold for a while. In one direction, if you will. Oh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh. oh. Uh, he enrolled in uh, Queens uh, uh. <laughs> Queens College to study business, where he came up with a totally unrelated idea. A helicopter taxi service for New York City. That's a thing now. Mm-hmm. But this was the late 1970s, so it was not a thing. Super not a thing. <laughs> I want that. Perlman was able to acquire a helicopter and actually did launch the business, but uh, it never really took off. (laughs) Uh, Although it did evolve into a company called Airship Enterprises Limited, which uh, did actually make Lou quite a lot of money. So he was an entrepreneur. First couple ideas didn't work, but then finally something did. This business consisted of buying blimps and leasing them to large companies for advertising purposes. 
What? So he was was a blimp king. Oh, God. Why hope that was his vanity plate? Mm -hmm. To get off the ground. (laughs) You need to stop. (gasps) Pepper monkeys. Hi. Let's see. Let's see Pepper's face. Oh, she's so beautiful. Hi, beautiful queen. I love you. Josie basically doesn't come up to the third floor of the house because she's too lazy. I feel that. You're climbing on my keyboard. Figure it out. There she goes. Okay. Okay, so Lou Perlman, buying blimps. He then leases these two large companies for advertising. To get off the ground, Lou lied about how much capital he (laughs) He had. He inhaled a bunch of I like that you had to repeat that joke so we'd laugh at it again. (laughs) I forgot. I'd already read that sentence. We're going to go off. <laughs> he lied about how much capital he had in order to persuade wealthy investors to fund his business, which is a crime. He, but it worked. So he was able to raise enough to purchase his first blimp, which he then leased to McDonald's for advertising. So things are, things are working. He then relocated the business to the best city in the world, Orlando. And took he landed on Orlando, (laughs) (laughs) and took on other major advertisers like MetLife and SeaWorld, which is the only company more exploitative of its talent than Lou Pearlman. Yeah. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was a SeaWorld and a Lou Pearlman burn. Nailed it. I heard it. I liked it. Mm From the beginning, the company was suspected of a range of financial shadiness, from possible insurance fraud to pump-and-dump stock market schemes after Perlman took the company public. So he's just financially running cons, running schemes, always, always doing something. Ultimately, airship enterprises crashed and burned. Is your whole case full of these just blimp puns? puns. <laughs> the blimp. This isn't blimp Hashtag crimes. Blimp puns. <laughs> Although blimp we should puns. do a blimp crimes episode. Oh yeah, writing that down after the holidays, if you know what I mean. <laughs> no, I, I don't. actually don't know what you mean. <laughs> what food. do you mean? Oh, okay. <laughs> All the food. It's like a blimp after the holidays. That's true. I don't know. Oh sure, That's true. very okay, gaseous. Whatever. That's true. Just, That's, That's true. a dairy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so airship enterprises crashed and burned both metaphorically and literally. The uh. company had to shutter after three of its blimps crashed in close succession to one another. Oh my God. And the company's stock price plunged from $6 a share to three cents a share. <laughs> oh, so that's rough. Maybe don't invest all your money in blimps. Blimps. I can't pay my mortgage right now. All my money's tied up in blimps. <laughs> tied, tied up. All my assets I've, are tied up in blimps. I prefer to call them zeppelins. <laughs> you know, these investments are a little up in the air, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put my faith. <laughs> <in>. <laughs> uh, 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 he was just full of hot air. He was. Oh, he's full of hot. It air. was full of hot air. <laughs> Still, thanks to capitalism, despite the business totally sucking, it left Lou a rich man. So, yep. so he really could have floated that company as long oh. as he wanted. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> it left him hanging. 
Um, oh, God. <laughs> and Too actu- funny. And actually, the company falling apart when it did really was perfect timing for Lou because he'd started to lose interest in blimps after all and was ready to move on to the next thing. He was a little deflated after that went down. <laughs> His ego got a little. His ego ballooned out of control. The wind went out of his sails. (laughs) (laughs) Deflated. (laughs) That was a good one. Oh, it's so so We got to vandal the pun train. (laughs) I'm here all aboard the pun blimp. (laughs) I'll only ride the pun blimp. The pun zeppelin. How much do you think it would be to rent a blimp? For advertising purposes. You know today. what? Probably depends they on the They do it in market. LA all the time. I'd the rather blimp. rent a hot air balloon. Because then we no, could be up No, because I don't want to ride it. No, nope. I don't want to ride nope. it. I get Shut motion sick. My friend Kelly got really motion sick on a, in a hot air balloon I am not puking once. over the side of a basket of a hot air balloon, okay? Sure, I've been I'm up in one it. once. It's fun. She, well, then you've had your experience. Yeah. She she went up in one and started to, <laughs> started to feel ill. And also she had bought... um. She'd bought a Groupon. No. <laughs> a hot air Groupon. Discountblimps.com. <laughs> and like something like, I don't know if she bought it thinking it was for two people, but then actually it was just for one person. So she was like, this is a great deal. But anyway, she had to go up in this hot air balloon alone. Just one at a time and on then this romantic w- hot air balloon Right, date. And then there was a couple that was like definitely getting engaged. And her and the, like, balloon director. The operator. And she started to get really... The aeronaut. (laughs) (laughs) The Lou Pearlman. And she started to get really ill. And then she asked him, she was like, has anybody ever thrown up on one of these things? And he was like, not in my 32 years of business. And then then she just was like, like, started retching. So it was her, the aeronaut, and a couple getting engaged, yep. and she threw up. <laughs> she couldn't help it. Oh, that is the best story I have ever heard. I'm going to tell that story at cocktail parties in 20 years from well, now. There you go. That's at Kelly. Zoom Thanksgiving. You both met Kelly. You know Kelly. Yeah. Oh, we know Kelly. Kelly, I salute Blelly. you. That's amazing. <laughs> well done. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> did oh she say God. yes? I think the couple still got engaged, but yeah, Good. I mean, that's the that story is the foundation of their marriage. They're gonna tell that to their grandkids. Yeah. So you did them a favor, right? I'm obsessed with that story. My favorite part is the operator being like, "Not in my 32 years." Uh huh. Well, all that. And she about tries to, to keep the vomit, and it just like dribbles out. <laughs> like Nicole at that fancy party in China. Oh, God. Okay. We were at a dinner party with, like, some rich investor people. Didn't know what the fuck they were talking about. So Nicole and I were just drunk in the corner at this big table. And thank God she's wearing red because she's drinking red wine. Mm-hmm. I look over <laughs> and she just went, hmm? <laughs> I just bleh. just puked like at the puked table on down her front <laughs> at the table. And I was like, take this crimson <laughs> napkin and just tuck it into the top of your dress. Ooh. 
It was so fast and it was like real casual. It was really I was odd. sitting at the table and did not know until she didn't after. even notice. Yeah. Anyway, oh, okay. some of us are talented barfers. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, <laughs> Lou and blimps. Okay, company falling apart, but it's great timing because he's sick of blimps. <laughs> he had recently become fascinated by the success of New Kids on the Block and mm-hmm. had began to uh, and began to regain interest in his original career dreams of managing pop music bands. He started his own record company because he had all this blimp money. Transcontinental Records with blimp money. <laughs> with the blimp in- money. It's so stupid. I know. With the intention take my blimp dollars and go. take my blimp money company. and walk. I am walking. <laughs> I am floating. <laughs> with the intention of using New Kids on the Block as a blueprint for Blue Blimp for cultivating a variety of nearly identical boy bands. <laughs> And it turned out that Perlman was right, that boy band success could easily be replicated. Formulaic. Yeah. When you're right, you're right. In 1992, Perlman conducted an Orlando-wide talent search. Oh, wow. (laughs) The pool is deep. (laughs) With auditions held. Swamp is deep. (laughs) With auditions. Swamp. Oh. Held in his living room and his local blimp hangar. That is so sketch. I cannot. <laughs> that was now empty, yeah. but for one black leather love seat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With a yeah. home video camera yeah, on a right tripod. In front. Can you yeah. imagine? <laughs> you walk in, mothers are like, nope, ushering their <laughs> nope, children nope, away. Nope, 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 nope. Nope, this nope. was a bad idea. Nope. <laughs> Kenyon, didn't you audition for a movie with Whitney Houston? I definitely went to one of those sketchy, just trying to take ha- money Wide from you. Like a, a giant call. casting call. Yeah, yeah, totally. Went to one of those things. And in my head, I was like, okay, my name is super odd and bizarre. And all the famous people I know have really super weird names. Like, so I'm a shoe in. So, yeah, literally in my head, I was like, so this is a done deal. Yeah. <laughs> you may as well withdraw me from kindergarten, mom, because <laughs> I can't. I'm not going four, back. It was fourth grade. I have vivid memories of yes. this. Because I was supposed to go with you, and my mom got the day wrong, and I was mm. kind of upset that I missed it. Well, yeah, all it was was sitting in, like, an auditorium on, like, little shitty hotel chairs and then being like, and first you buy $300 photographs. Cutco knives. Then, yeah. <laughs> then you pay $75 for this training. Then. Uh, yeah, that's all it was. Anyway. Okay. I'd take the black leather couch with the tripod over that. In the blue At least there hanger. might be a job at the other end of, the, other end of that couch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least some cash. Yeah. Well, not much cash, and we will get to it. So he chose five unknown performers who he collectively renamed the Backstreet Boys. Some of them had already been performing together. We're not going to get into all the details. Yeah. Backstreet. What what they were before they were the Backstreet Boys does not matter. Right. Mm -mm. Right. Could not care less. Right. Backstreet Market was a teen hangout spot in Orlando. So that's where he got the name. Oh. Yeah. It's a a youth hangout Mm -hmm. building. Mm Mm-hmm. Yikes. Weird. So the band played their first show at, you guessed it, 
SeaWorld. Oh, Lord. In 1993. The dolphins revolted. <laughs> blood was shed. <laughs> the pools ran with blood. Runneth with blood. <laughs> and chlorine. We'll never leap again. <laughs> and within a year, they signed a deal with Jive Records. Oh, yeah. My guys signed a deal with Jive Records, mm-hmm. too. After Why co- wouldn't they sign with his own record company, Transcontinental? They were already owned by Transcontinental, but then Jive like was actually in the music business, whereas mm-hmm. Transcontinental was just Lou Pearlman and a blimp hanger. Oh, so they were more <laughs> of like, Transcontinental was more of like a representation. Right. Okay. Right. Um, after a couple of false starts early on, which I didn't know about, such as their first single that received no radio play in the U.S., what? Uh, they had anything before? They had a song before Quit Playing Games. It was called what? I'll Never Break Your Heart. Yeah. That's mm. the song they had? Yeah. Oh, well, I knew that song. Oh, well, it did not do well. Um, Weird. But I don't think I knew about it until after I got into the Backstreet Boys. Right. And then I was like, oh, this exists? Okay. This well, is they tracking. formed in... You know, late 1992, early 1993, they didn't really make it big in the U.S. until like 1997. Mm-hmm. True. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they first became successful actually in Europe and then later oh. back home in the U.S. Okay. And the Backstreet Boys even surpassed the success of Perlman's original inspiration, New Kids on the Block, becoming the best-selling boy band of all time, like Lucy said. Yeah. Huh. 100 million records. Mm-hmm. Get it. Perlman then followed the exact same formula and created NSYNC, another Mm -hmm. massive success and a supposed rival to the Backstreet Boys, although they were both like the brainchilds of the same man. All the money's going into the same pot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In addition to being in the right place at the right time to take advantage of the boy band craze, Perlman also seemed to have a natural talent for getting people to do what he wanted. He was, like, very con-manny manipulative. Hmm. According to a Vanity Fair profile, Lou was, quote, a big talker and a better listener. He drew people into his world by deducing their dreams and promising to deliver them. Mm, but dangerous his- game. We're getting into some fire Festival territory mm-hmm. here. But his soft edges, cloaked in Ugh. unyielding will... And the purring persuasions of a televangelist. Ick. Oh, I do not like how this was written. Isn't that really gross? But also really gross. Really evokes Lou Pearlman. Really spot on. That's Mm -hmm. why it's so gross. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. He continued cultivating bands and artists. None were as massively successful as Backstreet Boys or NSYNC, but they all sold records. Within a decade, the Transcontinental label was also managing the boy bands O-Town, LFO, Take 5, and Natural, Uh, um, as well as a girl group called Innocence. You know, in a sense, (laughs) (laughs) that rings a bell. But in an entirely different sense, I've never heard of it. No, But Innocence had one bright star, briefly, had Britney Spears as an early member before she went solo. Hashtag free Britney, though. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. Lou also Mm. managed several boy band adjacent solo artists, such as Aaron Carter and Jordan Knight. 
which we talked about. Mm-hmm. Transcontinental Records built and began operating out of a massive entertainment complex in Orlando that included dance studios and recording studios on site. Perlman styled himself as the jovial father figure to his artists, and he liked it when they called him Big Papa. Oh, This is gross. Yeah. It it's is. Predatory. Oh, this is into- it's sexual Uh just getting into territory that i do not like Uh at all yeah did you guys not know this about him i did i've never paid attention to this person yeah i i knew that he was fucking gross and he fucked over everybody who's Mm -hmm. ever worked for him but i didn't really know the details sure there's a lot more details so according to O-Town member Ashley Parker Angel. <gasps> Ever heard of him? Ever cried over him? Sweet <laughs> a- Yes. After your hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. Ever cried over him. <laughs> He's homesick. He just wants to go home. <laughs> He's not here to make friends. <laughs> He's not here to make friends. Um, so his quote about the experience was, quote, it was like Peter Pan and the Lost Boys. So he, like, isolated all of them. Oh. Ew. Most of these- He was their Pied Piper. Yeah. They're all, like, teens or early 20s. Impressionable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh Uh-uh. Most of these bands spent years entirely dependent on Lou. From the time that he selected them until they began selling records, Lou paid for all their food, clothing, housing, and transportation, and they basically weren't paid at all. They were paid, like, a per diem. What? Ew. That kind of control. So they were I mean, living, I get that they're underage, the band. but mm-hmm. yeah. No, but a lot of them were over eighteen, though. I suppose that's true. Yeah. So that's so yeah. creepy to me. That In level of control freaks me out. Yeah. Oh, there's more. In 2002, Perlman published a book titled "Bands, Brands, and Billions: My Top Ten Rules for Making Any Business Go Platinum." Planes, Mm -mm. blimps, and automobiles. (laughs) Brands, blimps, and billions. (laughs) And underage teens. Oh. Blimp Street Boys. (laughs) Blimp Street Boys. I like Backstreet Blimps. (laughs) No. Blimp Street Boys is my Ashley Parker Blimp. <laughs> Ashley Blimp Angel. <laughs> blimp Town. <laughs> N Blimp. <laughs> LF Blimp. We'll stop. It's not even funny at them. Okay. Destiny's Blimp. <laughs> Making the Blimp. Pussycat Blimps. <laughs> So stupid. Okay. So for those of you not watching the video, Amanda fully has her sweater over her face. She's hiding. I've retreated into my sweater. (laughs) 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 Okay. (laughs) So, (sighs) as it would later be revealed,
world, one of the ways that Perlman was making his billions was by stealing from his artists. Oh, shit. It's not from the blimps. In the, in the late 90s, the Blimp Street Boys filed a lawsuit, filed a lawsuit against Perlman. Wait, against boys, Goodyear. Boys to blimps. <laughs> blimps to men. Blimps to men. Uh, Casey uh, and Blimp. Uh, uh, My back hurts from laughing uh, this hard. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Okay. okay. <laughs> it's gonna be the longest. Well, I can't believe we've, we've kept done. any listeners. I swear to God. <laughs> How? <laughs> okay. Holy shit. So oh. in the late 90s, the Backstreet Boys filed a lawsuit against Perlman. After the excitement of their record deal and their massive fame had worn off a little bit, the band had begun to realize that they weren't actually making very much money. The band collectively had received only about three hundred thousand dollars total. Mm. No, <laughs> well, Perlman was clearly making millions, tens of millions. Yeah, and three hundred thousand divided by the f- what five. five of them, and oh, they'd God. been working for four years. That's oh, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't even God. cover their denim. <laughs> Backstreet Boy Brian Luttrell hired a lawyer to figure out what was going on, and they soon realized that under their contract, Perlman was being paid separately as both a manager and a producer, so he's already being paid twice. Then he was also receiving an equal cut of the band's income. Essentially, and quite laughably, he was referred to in the contract as the sixth member of the band. (laughs) (laughs) That's just like some really sad Uh like wanting that proximity to fame and success and like that idolation that these boys got. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, there are photos of him on the drive. I mean, he is just... He's nasty. He's like... um, is it Mad Max? One of the I, Mad Max sure. movies where they're like in the desert and the like evil mm. guy is in the like mountain and he's holding he's he just like hoards all the water and, and he has all the yeah, wives. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Sure, 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 yeah. sure, sure. He's not good. He's not yeah. good. Yeah. So the Blimp Street Boys so much, for misrepresent. <laughs> Sued for misrepresentation and fraud, followed closely by NSYNC. Both bands had experienced the same treatment by Perlman. They had been personally selected to be a member of the next massively successful boy band, after which they became entirely reliant on Lou for all their needs, and they were paid, again, only a per diem stipend of $35 a day. Um. Until the band hit it big. And then they would be given their share of the profits. So they were all like, okay, we just got to make it big. We just got to make it big. They're working like 16-hour days for years. They finally hit it big. And they're like, okay, all right. Now we're going to – now it's going to all pay off. And in a documentary about Perlman, NSYNC member J.C. Chazé. Chazé. 
recalls eagerly awaiting his first actual check after they became successful. Perlman took the band out to dinner at an expensive steakhouse in Beverly Hills, made a big deal about their check presentation. Huh. And so they're, like, expecting a lot of money. And instead, Chazé was shocked and devastated when he opened his envelope and found that the check barely eclipsed four figures. Ooh. So does that mean, like, a grand or, like, nine grand? No, that means, like, like less, less than a hundred grand. Like, a hundred grand. Four well, Four figures, figures would be, like, a thousand. Four figures is a thousand dollars. Wait, yeah, really? Yeah, it's all of the One, slots. Zero, not zero, the zeros. Zero. It's all the slots. Oh. So, oh, my God. So it was, it was $9,999 or less. <laughs> oh, my God. That's even worse yeah. than I thought. Damn. Mm-hmm. His bandmate, Lance Bass, adds, quote, not to sound ungrateful, but when you compare it to how many hours we had put into this group for years, it didn't even touch minimum wage. That's so fucked. Justin Timberlake has described his years as a member of NSYNC under Perlman as being, and this is uh, a very intense statement, as being, quote, financially raped by a Svengali. Okay. Okay. Um, Don't personally love the use of rape as a verb for not rape. Yep. But anyway. Financially intensely exploited by a Svengali. I had to Google what Svengali was. <laughs> like a... Yeah. It's like a magician. Yeah, like Rasputin. A person who exercises a controlling or a mesmeric influence on another, especially for a sinister purpose. Yeah. Huh. It's a character in the novel Trittleby. Cool. Cool. So, um... The Backstreet Boys and NSYNC ultimately both cut ties with Perlman after messy legal battles that resulted in multi-billion dollar settlements for the bands. NSYNC then had their most successful album yet immediately following their breakup with Perlman, No Strings Attached. Yeah. And the hit was it. That fucking slapped. And the song Bye Bye Bye, they're both uh, references to Perlman. And oh. just so you know, Celebrity was the 2001 NSYNC album. Mm-hmm. No Strings Attached was 2000. So it was okay. right after that. Okay. So Perlman was eventually sued oh, by did pretty celebrity much have every dirty pop on it. I think so. Mm. That's why I The didn't first know song was Celebrity, it. Celebrity, Celebrity, mm. Celebrity. If that's ringing a bell. Mm. It's not. Cool. If that's ringing a blimp. <laughs> <laughs> so. Perlman. Ring my bell. <laughs> Perlman was eventually ring a ling a ling sued <laughs> by pretty much every band that he managed, but it turns out that he was engaging in activities even more criminal than scamming teen boys out of their fucking oh, money with sketchy contracts. In 2006, after an investigation into some financial irregularities, the state of Florida discovered that alongside his music business, Perlman had been running a massive Ponzi scheme for the last 15 years. He had persuaded nearly 2,000 people, mostly elderly Florida retirees, including like close friends and his own family members. Great. Uh, to invest over $300 million 
in transcontinental travel services and transcontinental Implants. airlines. Mm-hmm. Companies <laughs> that did not exist. <gasps> That's oh, a lot more than four no. figures. Just saying. He had essentially used the legitimacy that he had gained through his fame in the music business to pull off one of the largest Ponzi schemes in American history. Wow. Like he's up there with fucking Madoff. Dang. His investors, seeing that Perlman was the man behind some of the most successful bands in the country, which was undeniable, like he was, yeah. had no reason to suspect that he would be scamming them out of money because he already had plenty of like legitimate money. Sure. But he's Lou Perlman. One investor who over the span of 15 years gave Perlman over $12 million explains that, quote, the company was always doing phenomenal. He kept saying it would all go public. And, you know, we were getting a decent return, so we were happy. And besides, we got to meet in sync and the Backstreet Boys. Oh, look at the perks. Mm-hmm. So he was just trotting those boys out to investors to sell his Ponzi scheme. Oh, where he was sad. making, he was already making a shit ton of money off the fucking boy band success, which was huge. Wow. But he was really making his money from this giant Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Greed, people. Yeah. He makes no blimps about it. Mm-hmm. No. Another investor recalls that, quote, Transcon Airlines existed only on paper, but it was always so believable. There was always a plane or helicopter or blimp. <laughs> <laughs> I don't say that. Wherever he, whenever he wanted. When we flew to LA on MGM Grand Air, Lou said that the jet was one of his, that he was like leasing to MGM. When he said he owned the plane, well, how could you tell he didn't? Fair. You no? Know? I guess. When Perlman got word that the investigators were closing in on his crimes, he fled the country and he was almost broke by this point because he was hemorrhaging money with like, trying to pay enough investors so they don't realize yeah, it's a Ponzi scheme. because these scams aren't sustainable, ever. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. And it's like he wanted to stay, he wanted to keep proximity to this, like, fame and clout. Mm-hmm. So he didn't get out while he should have if you wanted to, like, mm-hmm. get yeah. away with it mm-hmm. and, like, change your name and disappear, buddy. But he, like, mm-hmm. he got off but on But he was being... too famous. I mean, he yeah. can't, yeah. Yeah, I don't understand the thinking because there's How no exit ever strategy. Think this is going to work out. Yeah, it's greed. Greed is completely blinding. It's true. Yeah. It's just so dumb from the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. So he managed to evade capture for nearly six months before being arrested in Indonesia after a German couple on vacation in Bali recognized him and informed authorities. I know that so melting man. Cool. I know that yeah. stress ball of a human being. <laughs> I know that human blimp. <laughs> Perlman, yeah, he doesn't really blend Stop in. that blimp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Perlman was brought back to the U.S. where he requested a phone and an internet connection in his, like, holding cell. Okay. Not to communicate with his lawyers, but so that he could continue promoting bans from prison. Give it up, dude. Gotta work to pay those bills. Perlman and his companies were forced into... He he could be our next president. He's got a lot in common with our current president. They're on the same track. Mm -hmm. 
Perlman and his companies were forced into involuntary bankruptcy and his assets and possessions were auctioned off, many of them on eBay, in order to pay restitution to his victims and to financial institutions that he defaulted on loans from. On May 21, 2008, Perlman was sentenced to 25 years in prison on charges of conspiracy, money laundering, and making false statements during a bankruptcy proceeding. Wow. In 2016... Following several years of health issues, Perlman died of cardiac arrest while incarcerated. He was 62 years old, which blows my mind that he wasn't 62 years old. In 1997. Yeah. 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 Look at him. Does it blimp your mind? It blimps. It blimps my mind. My mind is blowing up (laughs) like a blimp. Oh, this guy looks like an evil Mr. Toad. Mm Mm-hmm. In the years since Perlman's death, there have been numerous accusations that he was sexually inappropriate with the young members of the bands that he was cultivating and that he coerced artists into sexual favors in exchange for preferential treatment, which is surprise me at all. Yeah. These accusations are a little bit complicated because many of the actual artists have denied them. Sure. They've said that he behaved inappropriately, but they have stopped short of accusing him or agreeing with allegations of any kind of, of like sexual contact or right. harassment directly. But that being said, a lot of the parents are really highly suspicious, and mm. the rumors are so persistent and are so widespread. Yeah, that, that like, it does make you wonder. So Where there's smoke, there's blimps. Right. Mm-hmm. So I feel like. One, he was definitely inappropriate. And some of the some of the rumors are there, here's a quote. Quote, inappropriate behavior while they were young teens, including naked wrestling on beds at age thirteen. Mm. Perlman's full frontal nudity in front of kids and showing them pornography. Oh dear. These are rumors, but this is what I read. And quote, basically, this was an excuse for Lou to hang around with five good-looking boys. He was along for the ride. What he liked to do was take boys out to dinner. To be seen with them. Right. This so, is all ego and... Right. Ugh, ugh. So maybe he did stop short of actual sexual contact, but... Doesn't right. matter. Doesn't matter. It was all in the ballpark. Um. In an interview with Howard Stern, Rich Cronin of LFO, I don't know which one he is, but whatever. See the guy with the teeth? I'm going back to those photos. <laughs> I don't know. Look him up. Ish. The teeth. He looks like a badger. Yeah. He does. He has an oddly shaped mouth. Uh, stated that Perlman had, quote, wanted to bang everyone and that those who went along with what he wanted were, quote, looked after. Okay. Marilee Goodell, a woman who had two sons in the band Take Five, said in an interview about Perlman, quote, most of the stuff we learned about only after the group broke up. Lou played the game of trying to alienate the parents. Mm. Every time That's some R. Kelly shit. Mm-hmm, every time he dropped the boys off, it was don't tell the parents anything. They pretty much had a pact with him and they kept it. Did Lou rape my boys? No, he didn't. But he put them and a lot of others in inappropriate situations. I know that. To me, the man is just a sexual predator. Uh. So apparently Rich Cronin is not that guy. He's Rich is like the main guy. Yeah. Cornrow like guy. The, like the girls who wear Abercrombie girl, yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. 
but the guy with the mouth is also dead. What? Whoa. That both of them are dead. What? Two of the three LFO guys are dead? I think so. LFO who is dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're oh. both dead. Of what? Oh, Devin, that's sad. Devin Lima, the mouth, he died of cancer at 41. And oh. uh, who passed away? And Rich Cronin died in 2010. Hmm. Well, that ah. seems premature. That's so sad. Weird. Um, yeah. Last little bit. For many of the young artists who first found success through Perlman, his death seemed to provide a sense of closure. Lance Bass stated in an interview, quote, you feel happy that no one else is going to be affected by him, and then you feel guilty because you feel that way. You loved him. You hated him. There are so many things that come up with Lou Perlman. And then he added, we can all start healing. So it really was like a fatherly, abusive, yeah, that predatory. A lot like gaslighting and a victim of abuse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What Lance mm-hmm. said mm-hmm. is kind of alarming. Mm-hmm. I don't so like yeah, that. Lou Perlman, trifecta of creepiness and exploitation. DraftKings Casino is bringing you only the best classics like blackjack, roulette, and slots, plus exclusive games that you won't find anywhere else. I am like when I actually go to a casino, Lucy has witnessed this. <laughs> I am a video. I'm unstoppable. I am a slots and video roulette like mistress i am living for it i absolutely love it and so when i'm missing that kind of like thrill of a lifetime i love having DraftKings casino in my pocket literally on my phone where i can just like get get my get my jollies play my roulette play my slots i'm, I'm starting to learn blackjack a little bit i knew the basics i feel like it's a safe place for me to play it <laughs> With, with DraftKings Casino. And I am just having like the time of my life and you can win real money, baby. Get your Vegas fix. I'm getting my fix. Download the DraftKings Casino app now and use code GALS. New players can deposit $5 or more and get a match of up to $500 in casino credits. That's code GALS only on DraftKings Casino. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. 21 plus. Physically present in Connecticut, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia only. Void in Ontario. One per opted in new customer. Minimum $5 deposit, maximum match of $500 in casino credits, which requires a one-time playthrough within seven days. See terms at casino.draftkings.com slash players choice for eligibility. See terms at casino.draftkings.com slash players choice for eligibility, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Big shout out to Crunch Labs for sponsoring this portion of the podcast. And what is Crunch Labs, you might Uh. ask? I need to know, but I already know, know. but tell them. (laughs) Crunch Labs is a STEM monthly subscription build box for kids. Mm -hmm. It is so much better than just like a regular monthly toy box. Yeah. 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 So you get a really fun toy in the mail every month that you assemble yourself. 
So I got a disc launcher. Me too! Oh my gosh. It's so cool. You f it makes you feel like a real engineer. It really does. Women in We are women in STEM, we, thanks to Crunch Labs. We really are. So you get this every month, and then you or whoever you're gifting it to put it together by watching a video from former NASA engineer turned YouTuber Mark Rober. Obsessed. Where he teaches all the juicy physics that make the toy work. This is what I'm in for. Yeah, his videos are really fun and engaging, too. Like, I also got the disc launcher, and I have an incredible neighbor across the street who is she is five and she's like obsessed with legos and building oh, things yeah. so when we got crunch labs as a sponsor i was like hey girl <laughs> you want to make this disc disc launcher i love stuff like that oh she absolutely lost her ever loving mind i'm obsessed and this box like we mentioned it's different from the rest because each build comes with a guided video by NASA engineer Mark Rober. So it's just like this way to connect with your kids or the kid in your life. And you're not just handing them a toy. You're having like an immersive experience. They are learning along the way. And they're building all these little skills. It, it's so much fun. It's so fun to see them get super into it. And it's holiday season, y'all. This is like absolutely perfect for gift giving, especially if, you know, if you want to be like the cool aunt, Kids, lo they love a toy, right? But they love the memory of like what that toy did with you. Now you get to give that toy, but also gift and experience. So you could build that thing together. And then that's like a core memory Yeah, I in that kiddo's life. I built a fairy garden with a kid I babysat once. She probably still remembers that. It and she's was like, a decade what, ago. 25 yes, now? Yes, literally all God. of the above. Yeah, <laughs> obsessed. So go to crunchlabs.com forward slash gals to get your kids Crunch Labs today. That's crunchlabs.com forward slash gals and treat your gift giving. Treat it. But obviously we can't talk about groupie crimes without regaling ourselves with the tale of Sid and Nancy. Oh, we oh, are yeah. going to be bummed out. I mean, yeah, I'm not going to go that hard on it, but okay. you know. Uh, it's arguably one of the most famous groupy crime stories of all time. And this was recommended by our fan picker. So I yes. hope I do it justice. And also. <laughs> wow. Excuse me. Excuse me. I got to scream Achoo! when I sneeze. It makes it so much better if you scream. It hurts. Sometimes I'm it a hurts screamer. My Sometimes it hurts my throat. Good God. Oh, yeah. To scream sneeze. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> scream it out, baby. He was a boy. She was a girl. Can I make it any more obvious? Oh, my God. Are we, is it going to be a whole other Avril episode? I wish. No, I only gave you the one. He was born. Yours was too good. I was so good. I'll I never be tall. He was born John Simon Ritchie in 1957 and raised in London. And you know what that means. Oh, geography. Yeah. Geography. Oh, we yeah. haven't had geography in a long time. No, we, haven't. No, we haven't. London is located south of Buntingford, <laughs> east of Stoner. <laughs> North of Slough Green. Oh, oh. Soylent Green. Soylent Green. Yeah. And west of Foulness Island. <laughs> where I will be summering from here on out. <laughs> Foulness Island. I get no cell That's phone That's the single service. bathroom stall. <laughs> Foulness yeah. Island. Yeah. That's the only one that's open. 
It's the guest room. You have to go into fart where you have. What do you have company over? Yes. <laughs> oh, please excuse me. I'm visiting Foulness Island. <laughs> I am making a little placard for my bathroom door that's reads Foulness Island. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> okay, let me wrap this up so I can get to work. I'm writing it down so we don't forget. Thank you. <laughs> he endured a tumultuous upbringing due to his mother's substance use disorder. He did not have a relationship with his father, and his mother's addiction left him to fend for himself often. Oof. As a Great teenager, start. I know, not the best. As a teenager, he would find community on London's famous King's Road, which had become a symbol for mod and counterculture in the 1960s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, Sid found camaraderie in the form of leather jackets, spiked hair, combat boots, and cigs. Sounds oh, familiar. Classic, yeah. And hair. Sounds like Which doesn't school. sound quite no, as familiar. Not, f- not as familiar for me. Nah. No. No. Slightly. <laughs> he established himself as a punk musician yeah, only playing, slightly. only slightly, uh, playing drums for Susie and the Banshees and Flowers of Romance. And in 1977, he was approached by the Sex Pistols to replace their bass player, even though, fun fact, he didn't know how to play the bass, but he figured it out. Yeah. That's punk yeah. for you. I they mean, just liked, they just liked his look, his yeah. vibe. My and husband the plays the bass, and I can't fucking hear the bass to save my fucking life on, on any I know. given song. I, I would never be able to like listen to two people who both did play the bass and didn't play the bass and know which one played the bass. No. I've played two... I've, I've, <laughs> I've dated two bass players. One always wanted me to listen for the bass. Oh, yeah. The yeah. other didn't. And I'm dating the one who didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Listen for the bass, babe. No, but you you don't hear it right. No, I can't. My ears don't register whatever oh. you're doing. I don't know. I think I just, it's unplugged. I don't love you anymore. You know, you're just like not into music enough. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. That was a real line. <laughs> oh, put it on a button and sell it, baby. <laughs> and here I am being like, I don't like music. A bumper sticker. <laughs> oh, I'm fine. Okay. I don't love you anymore. You're not uh, like into, into music, music enough. enough. Okay, you play for a cover band? <laughs> Part time. Part time? <laughs> I don't know I was really spot. not supportive, I guess. <laughs> not supportive. Just not supportive enough of his creative life. Streams. Um, well, so other people's <laughs> creative life that he just copies on weekends sometimes. Appropriates. <laughs> uh, okay. So on the other side of the world. Am I wrong? No. <laughs> that was twist of the knife. <laughs> of the truth knife. On the other side of the world, Nancy Spungen. Oh, no. Was living in an upper middle class life in Philadelphia, and it's not working for her. Her refusal to conform and backing of authority, coupled with a possible diagnosis of schizophrenia at age 15, landed her in psychiatric care, after which she became a runaway at 17 and made her way to New York City to carve out her own life. Was so, it a possible diagnosis or we'll get was to a it in what I am about to say right now? I'm <laughs> not sure of the accuracy of that diagnosis, but it popped up in a couple of articles. It's very certain that she was struggling with her mental health, even if we aren't entirely sure 
what diagnosis is most she appropriate. She might have just been have. It's the 70s. Like it's she the 70s. Might've... She's 15. Like getting a schizophrenia yeah. diagnosis at yeah. 15 is not likely. Not super likely. Um, so um, so it's probably just that she was like acting out. Right. And maybe having outbursts. Mm-hmm. And... It could have been any. It could have been anxiety. It could have been. It could have been all anything. kinds of things. Yeah. It could have been schizophrenia. I don't know. But I can't say with confidence that that's what it was. Okay. I'm going to say no. Yeah. So she worked as an exotic dancer and fell in love with punk music and became well-known as a groupie in punk circles. She made her way to London when she was 19 to follow her favorite band at the time, Dolls and the Heartbreakers. Little did she know that this trip would lead her straight into the arms of her Romeo, Sid Vicious, and a new dedication to the Sex Pistols. And also a really good pet name for, like, a hamster. Sid Vicious? (laughs) That would be good. (laughs) It also wasn't exactly love at first sight, which in another parallel to my previous dating days when my eyes first landed on the lead singer and then his wedding ring and then to the (laughs) bass player. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nancy initially went for Johnny Rotten. She was more of a lead singer gal, but Mm -hmm. he turned her down. Then her eyes fell upon Sid, the bass player, uh, who also rejected her initially, but came around real quick. And the mm-hmm. two officially started dating. So when did he change his name? Or was that just his stage name? That was That's, his stage name. Yeah. He like went by Sid Vicious pretty much, I think, as soon as he started like really hanging out on, on King's Road or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like getting into the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, their romance was a drug-fueled whirlwind and they quickly moved in together. They both struggled with heroin addiction and their wild behavior was absolute gold for the tabloid press. Nancy was affectionately named, quote, nauseating Nancy. Oh, that's nice. Uh Uh-huh. And despite both of them being physically and verbally abusive to each other, Nancy was really the only one brutally smeared in the press. Mm -hmm. No shack there. Their codependency and volatile behavior was disturbing from the get-go. From This is a quote from biography.com. One onlooker captured the unique nature of their bond, describing how Spongen once instructed Vicious to push a fawning groupie down the stairs at a club, and he did without a second thought, recalled the witness. Oh, my God. Cool. He he was a knight in rusty armor. Ew. End quote. And as the Sex Pistols became more famous, the drug use escalated, because obviously they just had more access to it. Um, the couple was causing a rift in the band who weren't exactly a harmonious group of individuals in the first place, but they hated Nancy and wanted her gone. They yeah, hated she was her in the clubhouse. Yeah. What the well, fuck? Yes. And they, they hated her, which is unfair because it, it took the both of them to engage in this behavior. Right. But what they really hated was the relationship and how like right. fucked up Sid was and he could like barely play and was just right. a mess to be in a band with. Yeah, and he then, was a, an addict. Yes. You know. And she was just, you know, fueling They were it. just, yeah, they were just they were, both psychologically in distress. They both suffered from substance use disorder and they were having continuous, like, volatile and violent outbursts. Like, that would be a fucking nightmare to be around all the mm-hmm. time. And nobody's yeah. gonna do shit about it because you're so deeply ingrained in the punk scene that that's just, like, part of it. Right. So, like, who is sitting you down and going, hey, this is really dangerous and alarming behavior. We need to get you some help. Like, nobody's fucking doing that. He looks cool. 
Yeah. yeah. I was going to say. They're all to, over the press. To a certain yeah. point, that behavior is actually probably helping their popularity. Right. Oh, it, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, every people like, they were like the couple that everyone loved to hate and were super jealous mm-hmm. of. Like, they were yeah. all over the fucking tabloids all yeah. the time in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So um, they hated Nancy so much that their band manager, Malcolm McLaren, even tried to have her kidnapped and put on a plane back to New York City. My God. Yeah, but the couple were so inseparable and also, like, bonkers that they couldn't get an opportunity to snatch her up without <laughs> Sid there to defend her. <laughs> so, like, that plan so, like, There's nothing funny about that, but but it's funny. It is funny. <laughs> I mean... Well, it's, like, cartoonish. It's yeah, so cartoonish. It's such an outrageous yeah. plan that it's, like... <laughs> Oh, oh, okay. Absurd. It's it's the reverse Home Alone. Yes. (laughs) Just putting her on a plane. Get the fuck out of England. Kevin! (laughs) So, (laughs) when the band set boundaries and barred her from joining them on their U.S. tour in 1978, Sid responded by lashing out violently at shows, even hitting an audience member over the head with his bass guitar in Dallas. Oh my God. Which, like, a bass guitar is not, heavy, like, yeah. a fucking it's acoustic heavy. machine. <laughs> that could have killed this person. They're yeah. made Thank out of, God like, it metal. Didn't. It would be like a shovel. Yeah. Equivalent to a shovel. It's, yeah, it's very, heavy. very bad. Um, but this tour would be the end of the Sex Pistols altogether with a disastrous show in San Francisco on January 14th, 1978. So they'd barely been on tour for two weeks. And this tour in the U.S. was like the end of the Sex Pistols because oh. it was just too much. Because of him? Mostly because of All him. All of it. Yeah. But I mean, I just don't think I think that some groups do well traveling together and some just don't. And some just really don't. <laughs> so this is from Rolling Stone. Quote, in America, what fucked it up was what they was that they treated us like rock stars, says Sex Pistols guitarist Steve Jones in John Savage's book, England's Dreaming. They didn't know any different. They treat anyone who comes over the same way. So like they were this little band that nobody right. knew about in the U.S., but they come over and they play shows and everybody was treating them like they were fucking. They were stars. David Bowie. Giving them free drugs. Yes. So he goes on to say at Winterland, which was. Um, Winterland the, Ballroom? Yeah. In New Jersey? The, no, this was there was a Winterland vol- Ballroom in San Francisco. This is where their oh. last show is. But I'm, I'm sure there are multiples. So at Winterland, I had a cold. Sid wasn't playing a single note and he wasn't even plugged in half the time. <laughs> Which like And nobody fucking he's the bass realized there, it. So nobody noticed. <laughs> there we said it. There we said it. Listen for the bass though. Like just listen to the bass line. It's like, like so complex. For it. Oh, you're not listening right. So it me sounds and Paul like just this. <laughs> Can you hear it though? Do you hear it? Just listen. It's like a, like a three-note range. Just listen. Uh, and uh. It's really repetitive. <laughs> anyway, okay. <laughs> babe, babe, uh, babe, listen. Oh, I really miss him. So it says, me and, me and Paul just wanted to play. The one that I got kept, away. I kept cutting out. Strings breaking left, right, and center. The sound was absolutely atrocious, and Johnny Rotten's voice started to give out. 
The Ooh. band closed with a cover of the Stooges' No Fun, and near the end, Rotten melts down. Quote, there's no fun in being alone, he says. This is no fun. It is no fun at all. He's saying this on stage to, <laughs> to the, the audience. audience. Oh, no. <laughs> when the song ends, he famously asks the crowd, quote, ever get the feeling you've been cheated? And then drops the microphone and walks off stage. So, I'm doing that at our next so live show. our <laughs> Portland show. Oh, 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 I scare, I... I scared their if shit. If only you guy. folks knew you'll have to wait for our book for the behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah. The show itself was phenomenal. Wonderful. Beautiful audience, gorgeous phenomenal. audience. Pizza. Oh. Pizza. Loved it. Uh, donuts. Super fun. Yeah. Super, super fun super show. Fun. Some of the staff, however, not so great. <laughs> we won't be back to that venue. Mm, yeah. Uh, Okay, so it says it was the last time the Sex Pistols would perform together until their reunion tour in 1996. (laughs) I didn't know that that happened. Yeah. Bye-bye. I mean, who cares? So the band went back home. just over. So bad. The band went back home to London, but Sid and Nancy made their way to New York City, holding up in the Chelsea Hotel under Sid's real name, John Simon Ritchie. Sid attempted a solo career, but it didn't take off. <laughs> and the crushing rejection of trying hard to go solo as a bass punk player, bassist that can't play bass. Yeah, it's real addicted to drugs. I mean, he figured out how to play bass, right? But yeah. at the end of the day, it's it's still bass. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, The crushing rejection of trying to make it on his own, coupled with this toxic relationship, led to more drugs and a lot more intimate partner violence. One particular argument on uh, on and the night before October 12th of 1978. um, So they'd like been on their own in New York City for only nine months. Mm -hmm. uh, And this would be their last argument. Sid awoke early that morning to find Nancy dead, surround like in a pool of her own blood on the bathroom floor of their Chelsea hotel room. She died from a knife wound to the abdomen that caused her to bleed out. The wound was consistent with a knife belonging to Sid, and he was soon arrested for her murder. According to his conflicting stories of that previous night's events, he admitted that the two had had an argument and that he stabbed her, but never intended to kill her. Then he changed his story shortly thereafter, saying she fell on the knife. Oh, who has all... ever fallen on a knife? <laughs> and then he ran into my knife. He ran into my ran knife ten, ten times. times. <laughs> yeah. Um, and changed the story again, so a third time, claiming he had no recollection of the evening in question, which honestly, like, the that's the most evening. believable. Yeah. 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 He was pretty inebri- he was pretty inebriated <laughs> with drugs and alcohol at the time of his arrest, which rendered his recollection of events incredibly unreliable. So they couldn't like get a confession because he was like so fucked up that it wouldn't hold yeah. up in court, basically. Right. Um, and the punk community had their theories surrounding Nancy's death, and I guess we would just not know until this thing goes to trial. So some argued that Nancy was killed in a robbery gone wrong, carried out by one of the many drug dealers who were coming in and out of the hotel room to sell them heroin. Two dealers were confirmed to have entered and exited their room that night, and many believe that one of these dealers set Sid up to look like the murderer and took off with cash that was noticed missing from the hotel room. I'm going to come in here and say that I knew almost nothing about this case, so I don't know the truth or how it ends. And also... He did it. 
Okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know, but it really seems like he did. I mean, it mean, sounds, given their history. This yeah, is plausible, no. though. This robbery this, thing this is, is plausible. This is actually like a fairly plausible alternate theory. It but is. Yeah. I'm saying With that as somebody that money. doesn't know. Totally plausible. Mm-hmm. No other evidence of a struggle or foul play was found, and the NYPD did not investigate this possibility. However, no other evidence of a struggle or foul play in a Chelsea in the Chelsea hotel where they've just been holed up doing a for fuck ton months. of heroin for nine right. months. Yeah, like how the could place you even... was probably a wreck. Yeah, yeah. So like, right. what evidence? Right. It, it, yeah, it probably looked like a goddamn bomb went off. Right. Some reports also uh, stated that though Sid owned the same knife that killed Nancy, this was not confirmed to be the murder weapon. It was like the same type of knife. Okay. But there we don't know for sure because it's like the 70s. Pre-luminol. Right. I guess. If this was the murder weapon, it was just mm. consistent with the wound. Okay. okay. And really but, all they can probably tell are like it was or was not serrated. Mm-hmm. It was like four inches long or whatever. Yeah, it's right. not they as can't take DNA it off today. of it. It's fucking 1977. Yeah. yeah. Like they're not doing that shit. So these possibilities, like I said, would have to wait to be explored in court. Sid was beside himself in the wake of Nancy's death. While out on bail after his arrest, he attempted suicide by cutting himself with a broken light bulb. Ooh. Ooh. Was this it event- just, was not just, but was it more of a cry for help or was it like the closest weapon at hand? I think it was the closest weapon at hand because okay. it, it he was not well. Right. You know, like I, I think that were he given enough time and enough and and a proper weapon mm-hmm. he likely would have would been have. successful yeah um this event would result in a psychiatric hospitalization at Bellevue Hospital where he made another attempt at completing suicide by trying to jump from a window this attempt was stopped by hospital staff who pulled him inside as he yelled i want to be with my nancy oh In an interview he gave before his trial, he didn't exactly confirm or deny his involvement in her murder, but said that her young death was an inevitability that he'd always expected. Quote, Nancy always said she'd die before she was 21. I mean, that's just like something people say. Yeah, live fast, die young. don't use it as an excuse. Right. Or, yeah, Yeah. excuse. Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones had provided a lawyer to hit, uh, to represent Sid in court because he didn't have finances to afford it on his own. And that was like this quiet thing that like didn't come out in the press because like Mick mm. Jagger didn't like advertise it. Yeah. And he was funding the defense of a possible murderer. murderer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sid was instructed to keep a low profile in anticipation of his first court appearance. But Sid was going to do Sid. And yeah. on December 9th, 1978, he attacked a he attended a punk rock show where he punched Todd Smith, brother of Patty Smith, who basically ruled the New York City punk scene at the time and was known as the punk poet laureate, punched her brother right in the face. <laughs> at, but like it's at a punk show, but still it's right. like, dude, you're about to go to trial for murder. Yeah. <laughs> like lock it up. I also feel like a lot of people got punched in the face at a punk show. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But a lot of those people were probably not out on bail awaiting yeah. trial no. for murder. I'm right. not saying it was smart. Right. I've been punched Keep in the face profile. at a rat show. Now I'm going to punch Patty Smith's brother. brother in the face. Bye. I've been punched in the back at a show before. Who it hasn't? Hurts by a That's man. Duh. Oh, That's horrible. I didn't, well, I was, it was our friend 
Huck's show. Oh. Yeah. So like kind of screamo, really rock, metally rock mm-hmm. sort of. Mm-hmm. And, and a dude just punched you? Well, Screamo I didn't realize there was like rock. a mosh pit right behind yeah. me. You got pitted accidentally. Yeah. 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 It yeah. hurt though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I went and well. stood in the back after that. <laughs> so. Lucy, I don't care for music. <laughs> I was supporting my friend who also happened to be a bass player in that band. <laughs> Screamy. Yeah, but he's actually talented. We need to stop hanging out with bass players. I'm married to one. I know. have a problem. I know. We do have a problem. I'm good. You're good. I I say strong fingers. I say far away from musicians. Yeah, our boys know they're picking. (laughs) So this assault would land him in Rikers for 55 days. He was released on February 1st, 1979 and placed in the custody of his former Sex Pistols manager, Malcolm McLaren. You know, the guy who later admitted to trying to kidnap Nancy. Cool. It's very dysfunctional. What a family. The night of his release, Sid decided to celebrate his freedom with a night of drugs and alcohol after 55 days detoxing in Rikers. Oh, no. Yep. Oh, and no. as members of the New York City punk scene came and went, Sid kept a steady stream of alcohol and heroin flowing through him and was pronounced dead as a result of heroin overdose on February 2nd. As the only uh, solid suspect in Nancy's murder, his death halted the investigation and the case was dismissed without a posthumous conviction of Sid. So we don't oh. officially know on any kind of record who is responsible for Nancy's death, though it's most likely Sid Vicious. Sid Vicious. And frankly, the escalation of his behavior, his drug use, his depression. After killing your partner who, yes, your relationship was highly, highly violent and volatile, like there's still, there can still be love there. It doesn't, it's not always healthy, but... Like imagine oh, yeah, the killing fact that someone he felt that remorse. Right. And, That's and, what I mean. I think know, so intensely. I think it, it fucked him up because he knew he did guilt. it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then yeah. he just like was so horrified by what he'd done that he was trying to like drink and escape and shoot it away. Basically. Yeah. Or kill it. himself. To- well, right. Yeah. He yeah. literally did try to complete suicide twice, at mm-hmm. least as far as we know in that time. So, mm-hmm. I, I I don't know. All, all all signs point to him, in my opinion. It's like usually the most likely mm-hmm. thing is mm-hmm. the most likely thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Although, like Kenyon said, that the theory of the like drug deal slash mm-hmm. robbery mm-hmm. gone wrong that makes totally absolute plausible. sense. Also, also very possible, and also he he bears guilt for that if that is what mm-hmm. happened because. Mm-hmm. He's the one, I mean, they're both addicts and users, but he was the one probably in charge of acquiring mm-hmm. drugs. And Yeah, and there were some reports that, like, while Nancy did recreationally use drugs before she was with Sid, she mm-hmm. hadn't started using heroin until mm-hmm. Sid, like, introduced her to heroin. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, there's, like, we can pass blame around forever. I think, mm-hmm. he's, I think he stabbed her in the stomach. That's just what I think. I think that's number one most likely... And number two, most likely drug deal mm-hmm. gone wrong. And mm-hmm. and he would still bear responsibility for mm-hmm. that, in my opinion. 
Anyway, that's yeah. my case. Well, thanks, good Blortney. Job. Thanks, Blortney <laughs> boy. Um, I'm surprised. I yeah, I just didn't. You know, you hear about Sid and Nancy, and you think you know what they're about. I kind right. of just pictured them as like I want to watch British the movie now. Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, I re- I heard a reference to them in a song recently, and uh, didn't know flash. anything Sugar, about them either. Baby. And I googled them. I I looked at their Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. So probably in the last six months, I've read up on what actually happened because I didn't mm-hmm. know either. I just yeah. knew they were like a volatile punk couple. Right. I want yeah, and the, I like the photos of them are so fucking iconic. I put a bunch yeah. of them on the drive that'll be on yeah. the blog. But the it lot- was from that song. Mm-hmm. Give me a butterfly, sugar, sugar baby. baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. And you like Sid and Nancy. <laughs> yeah. So sexy, almost evil. Talking about butterflies, butterflies in my head. head. I used to think that happy endings were only in oh, the books, books I, read. I read. But you made me feel alive when I was, I was almost, almost dead. dead. <laughs> you feel that empty space with the love I used to chase. Like, Special thanks this week that. to Courtney Roy. <laughs> <laughs> so butterfly, thank here's a song. And it's in with a kiss and a thank you, miss. Amanda's a... But a, well, who's saying that? Butterfly song group. Uh, fuck. It's fuck. from the Orange County soundtrack. Yeah, exactly. The movie Orange County, Butter, which that is what I need to watch in again. my head. Okay, what is this? Who sings that? Well, the second you say it, I'm they like, like just they like remixed it like four years ago, and I felt like a grand crazy town, crazy town. <laughs> Good Somebody God. like remixed it, and it like the remix came on. And oh, or they no. sampled it, and then it came on the radio, and I like screamed, and then it wasn't <laughs> that song. Mm. God, God, God bless. You must have been so embarrassed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Wine and Crime. Our cover art is by Kala Yip. Music by Phil Young and Corey Wendell. Editing by Jonathan Camp. Check out our website and blog at wineandcrimepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at wineandcrimepod. If you have questions, answers, or recommendations to share, email us at wineandcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, basically wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It is the best way to spread the word. If you'd like to show your support, visit our Patreon page to keep this podcast and the wine flowing. Cheers! Cheers!